This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Art of War 40k podcast. I'm here today with John, and we have our guest, Brandon Grant. Say hi, guys. Hey, everyone. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you. Brandon. Nope. I was just going to say, this guy doesn't need any introduction, but in case you don't know, he he did win the most recent uh, LVO overall, I guess the ITC championship. Is that what you would call that? Yeah, uh, so I won LVO, and LVO was big enough that I also was ITC champion. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. You took my title from me. Well, <laughs> you've earned that title as well, so no That's harm true. there. We can share. Hey, Nick, I, not to be a Debbie Downer, but it's not your title anymore, so you can't really I, say... I suppose he, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, can't complain about it getting taken if it's not yours. So, <laughs> So... Uh, I guess we're here today to talk about Brandon and his his mono guard list, which he's been rocking with. Uh, what's all that about? And then why don't we fill us in on what is the list? Okay, so there's a couple things. One, once the Castellan went up 100 points, and once you couldn't get a 3++ plus plus invulnerable, it really wasn't over-centralizing anymore, which was great. Um, and without the Castellan, and it's massive amount of AP4 better firepower. Uh, you could have models that participated in the game without requiring an invulnerable save of 4 plus or better. So you saw a return of a lot of mid-range models, like let's call it Rhino equivalents, that were actually reasonable again, whereas before they were just easy kills for a Castellan. Um, and one of the things that made that possible to go full guard was the tank commander. So for as long as 8th edition has been a thing, Eldar has been a thing, and they've been the bane of guard lists for a while, because BS3 armies don't really like minus 2 and minus 3 to hit penalties. So, throwing a tank commander in a list, there's a big difference between a layman Russ shooting on 6s at a flyer, and a layman Russ shooting on 5s at a flyer. Um, so having that BS3 in your army is actually super important, and getting it from tank commanders, I felt was actually very viable. Your question, though. Um, yeah, you were saying uh, having a BS3 army. Um, so normally guard is BS4, so the advantage of the tank commanders is just that they're one better to hit, which is big in the other matchup. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and if you're going to lose, usually guard would lose to Yanari back in the day when Yanari was bonus actions everywhere. Um, and part of the reason was they were really good against BS3 armies when you can stack negative to hit modifiers. Um, so being able to fit BS3 fire support into a guard army made it reasonable without the Castellan. Uh, the other thing that helps is um, it's easier to get a lot of command points and use them with the Vigilus traits efficiently. So the Vigilus formations... Let's just go directly to the list. The list I'm using uses three of the Vigilus formations. Uh, the Tank Commander formation, the Chimera formation, and the Artillery formation. And each one of them allows you to spend command points in a way that helps you in certain matchups. So, in essence, the Tank Commander formation allows you to have a Tank Commander with a um, Battle Cannon that has flat three damage, which going from D3 to three damage it's actually huge it makes that big gun do on average 50 percent more damage than it would have without the relic so that's really nice to have as an option because most of the time there's something that's use that's useful to shoot that combined with the 
artillery formation, which is just straight up, if I need to murder something, I can power up my piece of artillery for four command points, and it'll shoot twice, re-rolling to hit at something that must die, turn one, um, which can be really game-shifting, especially if you have the right artillery piece. It's a choice usually between a wyvern and a basilisk, so a basilisk is better per if you have a good armor save and multiple wounds, and the wyvern is better versus hordes. So whichever one, or possibly both, depending on your list, that's a great option to have to say, you know, that unit of Zangors, it's missing 14 of them before you get started. Um, so that's pretty great. And then the Chimera formation allows you to be far more offensive with your guardsmen because it allows you to disembark after the Chimera has moved, which increases the threat range of your infantry that are inside extraordinarily high. So you have an infantry squad that would have gone six inches and charged 2d6. And now they're going, uh, what is it? 15 plus D6 plus 2D6 plus 1. Um, so what is that? That comes out to 16 plus 3D6 inch threat. So it's a huge buff going from 6 to two and 2D6 to 16 and 3D6 as a charge range threat. Um, and of course it costs command points to do that. You have to buy the formation. You have to buy the strat. But again, I'm throwing this in a list with triple battalion so it starts with 15 command points before well after all the vigilist traits are purchased um so it has the command points to throw into the pieces of the list you want to power up for that match which makes it pretty versatile so so this this allows you to like really tailor how your list performs in certain matchups right because sometimes you know you need the artillery sometimes you know you need to get in get into combat with things uh and you have that option. So that's that's actually really interesting. That's the first time I've heard of anyone using the Chimera. Uh, the yeah, I think you're one of the first people I've seen use the Chimera. Uh, I don't even know what it's called. Formation, I guess, from Vigilus. Emperor's but Blade. We, Emperor's Blade. Your list, of, based on your description, sounds like an amazing toolbox where you can just pick which tools you need for any given situation. Um, do you ever find that you're lacking just raw power because you have so much flexibility, but not any teeth in your list? Or do you think you can get it done with what you have? Well, that's the thing. The entire list is Katachans. And Katachan vehicles get to re-roll the number of shots for their blast weapons. So if you have a random number of shots, you can re-roll it if you don't like it. So it takes your average from about 3.5 attacks per D6 to more like 4.25 and reduces the variance significantly. So it means you have much more reliable and slightly better firepower, which is pretty great um, compared to most guard armies. And on top of that, Katachans are strength 4 in melee, and they have Strachan. So you throw Strachan, a priest, and 30 Katachans at something, and they're not going to like it most of the time. Um, So the list has some brutality to it for sure it's just it's it's brutal against very specific things in specific ways so for example it's brutal against infantry but only from close range because you need to get in first rank fire second rank fire range and you want to get charges off on infantry um and it's brutal against vehicles but only from far away for the most part you have tank commander support you might have artillery support psychic support um and there's also Bulgrins in this list, so you do have some board presence. But before getting into the details of the list, you've already described this as a toolbox. That's kind of how I try and design a list. So think of playing 40k as you're trying to get an edge on your opponent at something. If you have no edges on your opponent, it doesn't matter what kind of game you're playing, you're going to lose. Because that whatever game you're playing, your opponent still has an edge. Well, not guaranteed loss, but at least you're playing at a disadvantage. So the three ways I see to try and go to victory over simplified would be you can try and win on efficiency. So that efficiency would be if we just sat across from each other on the board and ran at each other, uh, my list can take damage better and or deal damage better than your list. So I'm just going to throw my army into your face and I'll win. Um, so you can win on efficiency. So old plague bearer style lists are very into efficiency. It's you're going to very slowly kill these plague bearers, and I'm going to smite your army off the table. Uh, I don't need to be very subtle. I just need to move towards you. Um, 
or you can win on mobility. So mobility would be, I'm going to be able to hit you before you hit me. So by the time that you're able to retaliate, you're already dead. So mobility could include things like uh, Zangor Blob using the gem to charge in turn one and just do a bunch of damage. It could be uh, deep striking chargers that are reliably getting in 90% of the time and just picking up models. Um, it could just be the ability to uh, deal damage without retaliation, um, which kind of goes back into efficiency. So if I wanted to have tank commanders that are Talarn and shoot, move again after shooting so you can't retaliate, that's also a kind of mobility enhancement. Basically, it's by the time you're able to retaliate against my army, I've already picked up the pieces that I need to in order to win. So you can go for mobility over efficiency. Um, and mobility includes your movement, but mobility might also include range advances, uh, range advantages. So if I'm a Tau army, I don't need to deploy at the line. I deploy 12 inches behind the line. And if you don't have longer than 36 inch range, I have a mobility advantage because I still hit you before you hit me. And then the last thing you can try and go for is quote unquote board control. And oftentimes board control overlaps with some of the others. So board control might be, I'm going to push 120 cultists down the board uh, with Alpha Legion, and the middle of the board is mine. Like, there's nothing you can do about that. I'm going to control more objectives than you, at least until you deal with all my army. And you can try and win on that. You can say, yes, you're going to kill me. Yes, you have a range advantage or a movement advantage on me, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to hold more objectives and score all my secondaries, and I'll win that way. So the the game plan that you're taking in order to win might change depending on who you're facing and what your army is. And you're always trying to look for what can my army do better than this other player so that I'm going to score more points by the end of this game. So when you have a toolbox army, it gives you the flexibility so that if I go up against a Tau list, I have the mobility with the Chimeras to first rank fire, second rank fire with most of the guardsmen into them turn two, um, but also to declare charges if I need to, to pick up stuff that's out of line of sight. Um, it, I can put a lot of threat downfield very quickly if I need to. One thing that's really interesting to me about your list, just in listening to you describe it, is it's got a lot of complexity to it, yes. which means it just has a ton of options, which gives you a lot of opportunities to outplay your opponent because either... Um, you know they're not familiar with something you can do like we talked earlier about the Camara formation most people haven't seen or played against that so you're probably you know not going to intentionally try to fool them or catch them off guard but there's probably things you can do with that that they're not aware of because they haven't played into it or researched it you know for example um and if you haven't played against something a lot it's not top of mind a lot of times so you might have read that you know certain things can be done but you're not going to be thinking about it necessarily in the heat of the game so your your list just has enough complexity to it where you get a real advantage in your games because you know what everything your list can do inside and out. And your opponent, it's quite a task for them to know that much about it, right? It's very easy, you're right, to not realize what is important in my list to dealing with your game plan right now. So I've had opponents who focus down the wrong part of my list early because it seems like removing this piece of my army is going to make the whole tower fall down. But in actuality, it was another piece. Because um, it depends on what my game plan is and what pieces are important for that game plan. So you're right. There's some complexity there even before you get into the formations. Because when I go to the table, I always ask, are you familiar with guard? Yes, no. Are you familiar with Katachans? Are you familiar with Bulgrins? Uh, do you know what these Vigilist formations do? And if there's ever a no answer, it's okay. Well, I can disembark from a Chimera after it's moved. And I can still shoot and charge. My artillery can shoot twice. It couldn't normally do that. Um, I'm probably going to take this relic against you. Now you know that it's on this vehicle. Um, and there's other stuff you can do as well. But every time it's like, yes, as I'm building the army during the deployment phase, I'm explaining what everything does. So on paper, at least, you know what all the individual pieces do. But you're right. There's some complexity there because you're not familiar with a list that works this way. So if you're not familiar with it, it's easy to misjudge what my plan might be. 
and uh, the pieces that are important to executing that plan. So you're right. It's it's not that the rules are complex per se, but that they're not common. Yeah, just to piggyback off that idea, you know, you're obviously not playing the game of Gotcha 40k. That's just not a healthy way to play it. So if your opponent has questions, you're very candid and straightforward. Like, yeah, I can disembark with my Chimera at shoot and charge for one CP. I can shoot you twice my Wyvern. I have a damage three battle can. Strack increase combo lets me have four attack catachins or whatever it is, three attack catachins. Mm-hmm. And all those individually, anyone who understands 40k can break down and be like, okay, this is what that means, this is what that means, this is what that means. But the, your list is greater than the sum of its individual parts. Any one of those rules isn't too strong. It's when you start combining a, a chimera moving 12 inches, the unit disembarking, chaining back to another unit that moved forward, using the combined squad strategy and making a charge like that, all of a sudden your list gets a lot more synergistically powerful, which enhances the overall effect to it. And that's not the, that's understanding the, the tactics and depth of the army. So, you know, you're not... That's right. It's, that's where the real power comes from, in my opinion. I'm, Is that fair? It's true. And I've had cases where I'm using command points for abilities and against someone who has Vect available. And internally, I'm thinking, I sure hope they don't Vect this. And I don't even think it ever occurred to them to Vect that because it simply never seemed like it was threatening. It's like, yeah, go ahead and do that. Why, why am I caring? I remember we played a game at Nova, I think two years ago or so, and you had you were trying to fight twice with like three Space Marine Scouts or Blood Angel Scouts, and I vected that, and it was absolutely the right call because it meant you couldn't break the the Rapid on your Scout Squad, but that was got to be the most absurd vect I've ever done. Um, I'm glad you remembered that, but yeah, sometimes it's something that seems like it's not going to do anything that's actually really important. So yes, to your point. It doesn't work the way other lists work, and it might be difficult to figure out what is actually important. Because again, depending on the opponent, the plan might be different. So if I'm doing a really aggressive plan, the Camaros might be important. If I'm doing a really defensive plan, the Camaros might be irrelevant. So it really depends on what I'm trying to do. Absolutely. So obviously the matchup and the mission factor into uh, which style of game you want to play, aggressive, defensive, board control, etc. What factors do you weigh in on that decision? Like, if you're being outshot by your opponent, or if he has the capability to outshoot you, if he's going to just come at you because that's his style of army, deployment styles, missions, like, what, what factors weigh into how you decide that decision? So, historically, I've been very good at judging situations where I need to be aggressive. So it's very easy for me to go across my Tau player again, and say, I need to be aggressive because this person will table me if I don't leave my deployment zone. That's kind of how Tau works. Um, They've got a range advantage on the midfield, especially compared to Lasgun infantry. So it's like, okay, well, you're going to murder a big chunk of my army every turn, no matter where I am on the table even, because of all the smart missiles. So it's kind of like, all right, guess I have to go for it. And um, the list needs to be designed so that if I go second against a Tau player on Planet Bowling Ball, that I don't auto-lose, um, which is not easy to do. Um, it, it, I mean... This is something everyone struggles with, so yes. <laughs> um, but that's kind of where I'm coming from. So a lot of the elements in my list, I'm really bringing them, not because they're particularly efficient at doing any particular thing, except absorbing bullets. Um, and then my goal is to take those units and put them in places where they're going to be really annoying if you don't deal with them. So they're either going to hold objectives or they're going to start tying down units in combat um, that you want to shoot with or whatever it is. I'm going to be, are you sure you want to ignore this? Because if you don't, it's going to be miserable for you. Um, so that's part of the list design. Um, another list part of the list design is redundancy. Um, a lot of the times I'll take stuff and I'll be like, no, nah, add a little bit more. Because I'll have a role in mind for that unit, but I'll also think, what if I just lose half of this stuff before I even get started? Am I still going to have enough to win the mission? And if the answer is no, add more. Um, so redundancy is pretty important. But I'm getting off topic here. Where where am I here? Do you remember my question? <laughs> No, I've completely okay. lost the question. That's okay. That's okay. The question was basically um, 
when you when you have a toolbox army, right? How do you pick which tool you want to use in a certain situation? So like when do you decide if you need to run across the table? When do you decide if you need to castle? What factors into those decisions? Thank you. So it's the concept of initiative. And I said already, I'm very good at noticing when I have the initiative. Initiative is if neither one of us moved the whole game, who would win? If both of us just left the game state as it is now, who would win? And usually it's the shooting army um, that would do that. So whoever has the advantage in shooting or the advantage in range, they tend to be the one who's winning that game, which means they don't have the initiative. If the if they take no risks, if they take no movement, if they just shoot what they can see, they're going to kill more, they're going to win. So that's pretty easy to identify. And how to deal with it is, okay, I need to go forward and change the game state, take some risks, be aggressive, um, try and get an advantage. The one that I haven't been as good at dealing with is actually where my opponent has the initiative. Especially with these chimeras, I'm always tempted to just run at people or get closer to them. So Actually, the matches that I've lost this year have historically been melee-based armies. Um, and I needed to get better at judging what the odds were on various distances. And I've actually created a spreadsheet for this now, which I should have created a long time ago. And it's actually terrifying how far some of these units can go. But at least I know. So, for example, I know that if the warp time power goes off, there's really not much I can do to block a chaos unit. Like literally any unit in the game that you want to warp time, I can't block it. It's going to get a charge off on something. So then the only question is, um, how can I mitigate the damage? Whereas if it's some unit that can move, advance, and then charge with like bonus dice or rerolls, usually the threat range for that is on the order of 22 inches. So um even orc boys for example that are uh, evil sons is that the one where they get plus one move in advance yeah that's the faster one good lord those guys have a threat range of about 23 inches for a reliable charge like, oh, yeah, it's crazy if you want to get the odds below 10 percent of them making it assuming they have a cp reroll available you got to be outside of lasgun range is now my heuristic so misjudging the distances I needed to be away from things has actually cost me a few games. So for example, at the Slaughterfest, um, I did two things. One, I totally underestimated what a badass Abaddon is. And two, I got close enough that Abaddon with warp time was able to make a long charge and literally kill every Bulgrin through Psychic Barrier. Were you death hexed also? No. My god. <laughs> so, first of all, um, I think he did about two-thirds of his attacks as death to the false emperor. Second of all, my saves were not very good, even with the grand strategist and CP reroll. So yeah, the Bulgrins just kind of, um, they disappeared. But in retrospect, I should have realized, okay, keep in mind that I don't need to get closer to him. I don't have the initiative. He does. If I just stay back here, he has to come to me, and I have a shooting advantage, so I should win that game. So, yes, that's where you start identifying it as, if I don't leave my deployment zone, do I win? And if the answer is yes, why would you leave your deployment zone? Um, that's actually, this is something that I teach all the time in my Knights Pro group. It's basically the concept of, uh, you call it initiative, I call it doing nothing. Um, you always want to be in a position where you don't have to do anything to win. You want to shift the onus of doing something onto your opponent because then he has to start taking risks. Doing something inherently in a dice game requires you to roll dice, which means they can screw you over. Make decisions, which means you can make them incorrectly uh, or reach the incorrect conclusions. And it just allows for error on your opponent's behalf. So you always want to be in the power seat of, I don't have to do anything and I'm winning. And that's kind of what you're trying to create over here. Or you're using it as a guide, basically. That's correct. You want to set up a thing with just movement where even if all the dice don't work out in your favor, you're still favored to win. So I'll give you an example from a game I had against Junior at Barry Open. He was my only loss. Um, I had completely surrounded his knight gallant after it had completed a charge turn one because, you know, 
All of the knights go forward, then he uses the warlord trait to do plus two to his charges and advances, and then advances and still charges, and then uses a CP reroll. He's in. Um, so this knight's in my face, turn one. I'm like, okay, I'm going to completely surround it so it can't fall back, and then I'll charge it with Bulgrins. The problem with my plan was he was just a smidge inside of 12 inches from his knight valiant, so he was able to use the I'm going to heroically intervene strat, so yeah, he got to shoot. He did nothing. He shot into the Bulgrins. Um, but more importantly, he also gets to move 2d6 inches in any direction as long as he's getting closer to the unit that did the charging, which gave him on turn two the ability to harpoon my relic tank off the board, whereas I'd already measured it out. He couldn't harpoon my tank if he hadn't moved because he would have been out of range. So in retrospect, I didn't actually need to charge the Gallant at all. I just needed to be more than three inches away, completely surrounding it with guardsmen, so that on his turn, he's going to kill two guard units with it, because he can pile into two of them. Um, and that's it. And then he just sits there. And that doesn't involve any dice on my part. My mistake was that, statistically, I should have overkilled the Valiant by shooting my entire army into it. Except that Junior rolled something like 80% four-ups. So the Valiant lived with more than half of its wounds remaining. So it was House Hawk Shroud. It acts as if it's at full. Um, it was just like, oh, well, that was unexpected. But if I had changed my game plan to one that accounted for the possibility that the Valiant would be acting as if it was at full health, it wouldn't matter if my dice went bad. The Valiant still would have been out of range to do anything useful in the following turn, and I would have picked up the spare on the following turn, because your dice aren't going to be that bad. If you're statistically going to k overkill it in one turn, you should kill it in two turns. Um, so that should have been my game plan. Move in ways where even if something goes wrong, you're still in good shape. Yeah, you always want to have those redundancies. Uh, you n that's just part of never blaming dice, which is my personal mantra. Yeah, you should have killed the knight. And a lot of players will look at the situation and be like, I lost because I didn't kill the knight. He rolled 80% four ups. What was me? And you, as a top player and as a critical thinker and evaluator, uh, look at this as a mistake. And you're like, I had an awesome plan to kill a knight. I didn't have a backup plan for if I didn't. And that's my mistake. Exactly. Because even if something has a 95% chance, that's a 5% chance it won't work. Um, and sometimes Absolutely. that means it's going to happen. It's an inevitability that if you roll dice enough times, weird things are going to happen. I use C's as a prime example to, to teach this. So let's say you're going to a, a big major tournament that's six rounds, or more than six rounds, like Nova, LVO, Adepticon, LGT, whatever have you. Um, and you have a game plan that's, if I go first, if I know I'm going first and I deploy on a line, I'll just mathematically kill my opponent, and that's pretty cool. If you do that six times in a row, you're going to get seized on once and just lose. And you can walk away from that game being like, I got seized on. What am I going to do? That's life. This sucks. Like, dice screwed me. Dice didn't screw you. Your plan fundamentally was one in which you had no backup plan for getting seized on, and you're mathematically at that point likely to get seized on. And granted, in any one game, it's 16% or whatever. Over the course of a tournament, you're just rolling the dice on when's it going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. 100% right. One thing that's kind of kind of interesting to me as we have more of these discussions, and uh, Brandon, you, you raised a really great point. Sometimes the patient play is the correct play. You don't have to get everything accomplished in one turn in this game. Sometimes the better play is to just let what comes to you as a, in the natural flow of the game and don't try to overforce things or overrisk things if you don't have to, right? Like a patient, it seems to me all these top players that we've talked to are always sort of talking about how they're playing a six-turn game, there's more time to get done what they need to get done, they're advancing their game plan, and they're not just trying to make everything happen every turn necessarily. They're, they're, they're playing to win the game through a six-turn a six lens. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. Makes sense, and it's something that I've identified as a uh, <clears throat> room for improvement, because if it's sort of borderline which way to go, and it airs on, I need to be more defensive, historically that's been where I've had problems. 
it's really good that you're able to identify that for yourself. It's one of the hardest things to do in this game is be patient, especially when you don't really... It's really easy to go for an aggressive move, have it not pan out for you because dice happened, and then be like, well, that sucks. It's, it's very different. It's very difficult to evaluate the situation and be like, what if I just did nothing? Because that doesn't even really occur to people as an option. Doing nothing is one of the most powerful things you can do in this game because it completely shifts the onus back onto your opponent to do something. And like we covered earlier, if your opponent has to do something, you're in good shape. Yeah, that's part of the first turn, second turn thing. Going first, you do have the onus. You do have to do something because if neither of you leaves your deployment zone, you just stay out of line of sight the whole game. On the last turn, you move out if you went first and take an objective, and your opponent shoots you off the objective and takes another objective. They hold more, they kill more, they win. Yep. So just by going first, you have put yourself in a situation where you do have the initiative most of the time. And it's very difficult, having gone first, to re, re, redo the game state to give the initiative back to your opponent, unless you've just killed so much of their army that they, they need to do something. I described the first second turn dichotomy in ITC basically like this, and you can tell me if you agree. Um, from a mission point, you always, always, always want to go second. It's just a strict advantage for exactly the reason you just said. If nothing happens, I'll give the person who goes second wins by default. This puts the onus on your player who went first to do something and to, to then go and win the game. So the only reason to ever take first turn by choice is if you think you can deal such a crippling blow to your opponent or establish so much board control over your opponent that it's going to overcome the advantage that your opponent gains by just doing nothing and being in the advantageous position. And yep. you know, some armies are designed to do that, other armies don't. But you need an army that can at least attempt to do that, otherwise you're going to lose every time you go first. That's right. So it's another dice thing. Approximately 50% of the time, you're going to go first. And if your list can't handle going first very well, then that's a design flaw as well. So, for example, if it, what you really want to do is make it uncomfortable for your opponent to go second against you. So if they go second, you're going to be able to put such an amount of punishment on them over the first two turns that by the time they get to take their second turn, they're already falling behind on the kill count, preferably. And it's difficult to design a list that can do that and be very defensive when the need comes by going second um, at the same time where you're like, okay, if I'm going first, I need a list that hits very hard. If I'm going second, I need a list that doesn't get tabled when I go second. Oh, man. So that's why tank commanders fit so well into your list. Because of their long range, they can play defensively. But they're also, like, with the Hammer of Sundrance and, you know, Strength 8, Toughness 8, uh, they, can, they can deal out a lot of damage early as well. That's definitely part of it, John, but it's also uh, the Wyverns and the Basilisk, being able to choose which one you want to pump up, given the situation, and then long range and direct fire is probably the best thing in this game for maximizing your ability to do something on turn one. That's right. So against certain enemies, for example, ones that rely on psychic powers heavily to get buffs, I'm very comfortable going first and just deleting the thing that was going to get buffed before it even gets a chance to participate. It's like, oh, is it out of line of sight? Well, I'm going to remove half of it for four command points. So, yes, the list has enough of a punch, turn one, even with indirect fire, that I can make choosing to go second a painful decision for most armies. It's actually, to go back into history land, when Yanari was an army before GW decided it shouldn't be, um, one of the reasons I didn't bring it to LVO was because I knew players like Brandon would bring, this is where Dr. Vigil's detachments had come out, would bring the magical wyvern and basilisk from the Emperor's Wrath Artillery Company. And like I said, you want to always go second. And I didn't feel great going first against Brandon because now he's got bottom of turn. That's a really big deal. And I definitely don't want to go second against Brandon because... A Wyvern or a Basilisk is going to blow up all my Shining Spears or Dark Reapers on turn one. It's almost a lose-lose situation. He's put me in just at the list design standpoint. Yeah, so you're starting to catch on. That was the thing when I played Sean Naden at LVO, is he had Shining Spears in Yunari, and he had to reserve his Shining Spears because if he'd gone second, and both of my Wyverns had fired into the Spears, 
one of which would be double firing, rerolling, and ignoring cover. Um, a lot of those people disappear before they had a chance to participate. So that's really painful when your star unit is neutered like that before you even have a chance to use it. Absolutely. So it's one thing to be able to design a list to hide and take a beating turn one. It's That's only half the battle, though. You don't need that same list to opportunistically be able to capitalize should you have to go first or should you even want to go first. It's You want to be able to, to take the brutality of going second and dish it out if you have first turn. It's a really hard balance for most armies to achieve. But Brandon, with his durability from the Bulgrin and all the vehicle holes, coupled with the just range and artillery, I think his army does that beautifully, which is really awesome. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think maybe it might be good to shift the discussion a little bit to actually talk about what's in the list. Um, we've sort of danced around it, but do you think we should maybe, Nick, go through the list line by line? So, our- Yeah, I mean, Brandon, if you want to just like detachment by detachment, unit by unit, just go through formally what's, what your list is? So- I can go through what the list has historically been, and then as a counterpoint, I'll go to um, some of the design process and how it might be changed. So the current list has three battalions. Um, Let's start with the tank commander battalion. It's just two tank commanders, uh, with one with LAS cannon plasma gun and heavy stubber, and one with heavy bolter plasma cannon, both with battle cannons. Um, and then the one with the heavy bolter is typically the one that I put the relic on just because the third tank commander also has last cannon plasma cannons. And I'm like, I may as well shift where the firepower is distributed so that I don't lose one of the best tanks right off the bat. It's still the best tank to shoot, but at least I preserve last cannons somewhere else. Anyway, that battalion is pretty simple. It's got the two tanks and 30 infantry. So two HQs, three, three troops done. Uh, the next one is the uh, Emperor's Blade, which is the Chimera formation. That one has Strachan, a company commander with a power fist, three infantry squads, and three Chimeras, both with, or all with double heavy flamer. Um, so again, I can get out after the Chimeras have moved with one unit for a command point. Great. Uh, the last battalion has another company commander with a power sword combined with um, who am I missing? Oh, the last tank commander. Um, the one with the last cannon plasma cannons. Uh, so that's your two HQs. Then it's got the 30 infantry. Then it has nine Bulgrins, uh, a priest, an astropath, and a uh, wyvern. And then historically, I've been also leaving the points for an assassin. So I've got assassin summoning. So I start with 13 CP after all is said and done. Now, after a lot of playtesting, the Assassin's a really interesting unit, because even when the odds say that the Assassin has like a better than 50% or like 60 or 70% chance of removing a character, it never seems to work out in my favor. The Assassin very rarely is able to solo even a company commander. It's ridiculous. So what I started doing with my assassins was actually bringing a Calidus just to be a command point distraction, which again, I rolled so poorly for the four ups to deny command points. It always cost me more command points than it did my opponent, which is feels strange. Why am I doing that? Um, this is definitely just what it feels like to run an assassin, but please continue. Um, and then I'd be like, okay, I'm just going to have this Calidus show up in the middle of my infantry horde. And she'll just pistol whatever your front rank unit is for D3 mortals every turn. Like, that's what I ended up doing against Tau. Um, It just came in and started D3 mortals to a Riptide every turn. Um, Because it couldn't charge. The Tau would just overwatch and kill her. Um, Or against Marines. uh, Or Chaos. I mean, Kaladus came very close to killing Aramon. And then I only made one four up to wound him out of four hits and he lived it's like oh cp reroll nope still lives like ugh. um and a vindicare is just a complete waste of time i mean i would have been better off with just shooting las guns into things like tanks than bringing that vindicare for the same cost because it costs that two extra command points it was just like none of these assassins seem to be doing what they're supposed to be doing um 
And is there a happy ending to this? The happy story? ending is I think the assassin's getting shelved. So <laughs> I was wondering if there was like some secret backdoor tech you found for like some crazy unexpected use of an assassin. I guess not. the thing is, I think assassins have their uses. They're just not a tool that this list needs. Um, so, for example, I feel like Jeff's list that I faced at the Barry Open actually made good use of a Vindicare. And the reason was that he had three of the Mechanicus squads with the sniper rifles. So if the Vindicare left a wound on a character, well, one of the Mechanicus snipers might pick up the spare. Um, so I think that the assassin is great as part of a push somewhere. But you can't expect the assassin to go anywhere on the table and be useful by themselves. That was my conclusion. I agree um, with the assassin conclusion you just drew there. That's why, especially because it costs two CP now, so it's a rather large inconvenience to actually just take one. You, it's not strong enough on its own to reliably get anything done. So unless you take multiple in an actual dis- assassin detachment to try to accomplish something, or you take supplementary units like your example with Jeff and the, the rangers with the, the arc rifles or whatever they're called, um, I, I think a solo assassin just doing its solo mission type thing is just too non-synergistic, I guess. Yeah, the assassin, you'd think statistically would do certain things, and oftentimes it doesn't work out, and you're left with no recourse because, again, with redundancy in my list. Well, yeah, it's a low sample size of dice, yeah. right? Like assassin, like a Vindicare shooting a character is A to hit roll. Sure, it's a two, but it's odd to hit roll and odd to wound roll. He may get an armor save if he's like got a two up or something, or he's got a three up and he just happens to roll six. And then if you're trying to one shot a character, you have to do a, a pretty hefty amount of decent damage there so between all three like hit wound save and d3 damage plus potential mortal wound or whatever it's actually not even likely or that likely that he kills a character and with a small sample size you're gonna feel it a lot if he falls just a small bit short yeah i'm talking about a commander shooting six times into a tower army and didn't actually do anything well, that's uh, it's pretty bad that's yeah that's something else there mr how many in total, did you say your list has? How many total CP? No, infantry. 90. 90. So you have a ton of guys. Um, yes, but it's the minimum required to fill three battalions. Right. right. So I'm used to dealing with that many models at this point. And in fact, to speed things up, I have now have a movement trace. So I can deploy them faster when I just need them to be on the table to start the game. I can just pick them up, put them on the board, and if I don't need them to be in a special formation, I can just, here, move, um, to try and speed things along. But that is a concern, especially if you're a newer player, is if you're just starting to practice a list that's high model count, you, it can be really difficult, because you need time to consider things, but then it takes time to move all your models. So it's almost like, as the turn is starting, you already need to have a plan. Because if you're taking an extra five minutes a turn, you don't have five minutes a turn. The models take too long to move. Um, so that's definitely a concern. But 90, I think 70 to 90 is the magic number for guardsmen. Um, I think, especially if you're bringing characters to buff them, if you're taking less, an opponent can easily kill 50 of them in one turn. Like, there are opponents that will do that. Um, heck, G2 or Colt's one of them. One of my testing partners, Jack, he has kind of got a theory. He's like, every guardsman you take after about 60 guardsmen is like, they're functioning like 20 guardsmen. Because your opponent can kill 60 or so without really trying at all, or without putting real effort in. But every guardsman after that kind of becomes a real problem because he's exhausted all of his efficient ways of killing guardsmen, or his natural ways of killing guardsmen. So if you take 90 like you're taking... The first 60 will just die, and the last 30 will be a menace, if that makes sense. This was a concept that was fleshed out when the first tanks were invented, to bring in history. Um, the original concept for tanks was as an infantry support weapon, so they just assigned them to battalions and said, here, you get a sprinkle, you get a sprinkle, you get a sprinkle. Everyone gets a sprinkle. What the Germans figured out is if that if you put all of your tanks in one spot, 
your enemy would have a certain number of anti-tank guns and their own tanks that would be completely overwhelmed by the number of tanks you just brought. So yes, the first wave would get annihilated, but the second wave would be unmolested and just roll over. So if yeah, you're going to... History tiny, that's pretty cool. Yeah, the, the French built these massive tanks, like the Char B, um, multiple gun turrets, super thick armor, uh, weighed about twice as much as most of the Panzers. It didn't matter. They weren't coordinated. They were scattered. They didn't, they didn't have good communication, so they didn't have radios. They were still using these tanks with flags to communicate. And the Germans had tanks with machine guns in the turrets that were more or less training tanks. But it didn't matter. They had enough of them in one place that were communicating effectively with radio that even if they found a Sharpie, they could just go around it. There weren't enough of them to slow them down. Not in one place, anyway. So that concept has applications in real warfare. If you're going to bring something as a support, bring a lot of it so that if your opponent recognizes it as a threat and wants to deal with it, they're not going to have enough stuff to efficiently chew through it. So I wouldn't want to bring a list with a tactical squad, a Devastator squad, a Razorback, a Rhino, a Predator, a Dreadnought, and a Captain. I'd want to bring a list that's got three Predators instead of one. Whatever it is that I'm bringing, make sure I bring enough of it or things similar to it that if it's the thing I need to win the game, I'm not going to just run out instantly. So this concept makes a lot of sense. Just the concept of redundancy... um... Is one that most players talk about and, and praise as a high value concept to learn in 40k. Um, what units, and, and looking at your solo unit of Bulgren here, your solo Wyvern, your solo Basilisk, why do they get away with being one ofs in your type of army with this concept in mind? For one thing, they're specialists. So in some matchups, Bulgrins don't do anything. So if I'm facing, um, for example, a Custodes player who's running the Caladius tanks. And they're not really pushing out other deployments. Um, I had a game against three Caladius tanks and then a bunch of the spear riding guys. The spears have longer threat range than the Bulgrins. So if the Bulgrins ever advance to get close enough to threaten the tanks, they're going to get charged by literally all of the Custodes bikes. And then they're going to die. But the tanks are vulnerable. So what ended up happening that game is the Bulgrins moved to midfield and held an objective. And they basically said, look, if the bikes ever move out, there's a Bulgrin in the way. But I can't go forward. So the Bulgrins literally just sat around the whole game. So, number one, there are matchups where that particular unit has severe drawbacks. And they just aren't useful. Um, second, Bulgrins really benefit tremendously from the Psychic Barrier spell. And in competitive, you can only cast Psychic Barrier once. Um, there's also very limited ways to hide a unit of Bulgrins. So, because they take up a lot of space, their options for being reserves are very limited. Um, so, there's not really a way to chain Bulgrins into your opponent and have the only unit that's exposed to the enemy always Psychic Barrier. So, one of the units is going to die very efficiently or more efficiently, because it's not psychic barriered. Um, and then they're slow. So again, it comes back to, in some matchups, they're just not useful because they're too slow to participate. So there are games where I can lose all of the Bulgrins on turn one and still win. And that's okay. So that's kind of it. They're not, they're not a unit that, if you remove them, is going to pull the rug out from under me. They're a specialist unit that has a specific role and once they're dead, usually their role has already been served. That makes a lot of sense. I guess that's kind of the part of 40k that makes it different from like an actual uh, war, I suppose. We have concepts like psychic powers and buffs that you can only apply one time, which increases the value, like stratagems especially, things you can use once per phase on one unit, types of things like that, it makes it really valuable to take a one-of type of choice. That's right. And the only thing in real war might be a scarce resource that you can't give to everybody. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so there was a, I had a different question, but I wanted to just ask that because it was in the moment. Um, one of the 
downsides, I guess, to taking so much redundancy in so many units, triple battalion, um, with all these extra bells and whistles thrown around, you have a ton of units, which means your opponent has so many opportunities to get secondaries off you, Butcher's Bill, Reaper, Big Game Hunter, not to mention the Killmore point over and over and over. How do you cope with giving up so many points to your opponent throughout a standard ITC game? It's deceptive. So, for one thing, taking Are you saying I've been deceived? This list is deceptive. Um, for one thing, you'll notice that I didn't take into account secondaries very much at all with this list. Like, take your pick. You can take Butcher's Bill, you can take Headhunter, you can take Kingslayer, you can take Big Game Hunter, uh, Reaper, um, shoot the big units, whatever that one is. Um, any of the kill missions, almost any of them, take a pick. There's like five or six of kill things in my army, and none of them are bad choices. Um, and you're right, I have a high unit count. I think it's up to like 20-something. I have written my list. Anyway, it's a lot. So I have a lot of units. But if I'm winning, a lot of those units really never die, or very rarely die. So, for example, I have a lot of characters. I have two company commanders, Strachan, a priest, and an astropath. Those are five drops. The thing is, if I want fewer drops while deploying, they can go in chimeras. So, actually, they don't count as drops at all. On top of that, if they survive the game, they don't count as kills either. So, those are five units that you can just take out as if I don't have them most of the time. Because most of the time, if you're killing all of those characters, you're tabling me. You've already won. What more do you want? Um, on top of that, um, some of the th the units are more difficult to kill than you might think. So, for example, I have nine infantry squads. But against most opponents, every turn I'll use the combined squad stratagem so that I have a 20-man blob running around, and that's one less unit for you to kill. Every turn, one less unit, one less unit. One less unit. So usually that's about three fewer units over the course of the game that you'll get to kill because I combined them. So, I don't know. If I'm winning, sometimes especially in the early game, you're just going to be like, I pick up 40 guardsmen, I killed more. But towards the late game, you're like, well, all the infantry that I can see are dead except the blob squad, which now has psychic barrier on it because I killed all the bulgrins. So this is actually difficult to deal with now. Would you say it's almost the concept of like your opponent kills you too quickly so he can't space it out at all? It's, uh, it's something that happens with my Gene Steer cult a lot. I'll plop down 60 idiots on turn two, and my opponent will be like, free money, and just kill like 40, 50, 60 of them, and then he'll never really get kill more ever again after that. And he'll shoot himself in the foot almost. Like, is, is killing 40 guardsmen on turn one almost a trap against you? Almost, maybe not a trap, because he has to get through the guardsmen somehow, and the earlier you get it done, the better. But at the same time, he's shooting himself in the foot for the concept of kill more later on. It really is matchup dependent. So if the guardsmen are the linchpin of my strategy for that game, get rid of them. It doesn't matter if you have struggles killing more later. As long as getting rid of all the guardsmen is the answer to winning the game, go for it. It'd be like, oh no, against Gene Steeler Cold, I'm going to kill all the Acolytes this turn. Well, yeah, do it. Those things are the thing that murder you. Get rid of them. And if you struggle to kill more the rest of the game, it doesn't matter. Your opponent can't hurt you anymore. Um, so, yes, there are cases where, especially if you're pretty much immune to the Guardsmen, that eliminating almost all of them or all of them in one turn, you can then look around and say, oh, those were the only thing in Brandon's army that I was still efficient against, and they're all dead. I'm going to struggle to kill units. That was a mistake. That can happen. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess we're going to hop over to episode two to talk about your individual, individual matchups and kind of like what units you value more highly in those. But I guess, John, were there any more questions you had for Brandon on like the overall strategy perspective? We've covered uh, just a lot one. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just have one. Um, you mentioned you were going to take the assassin out or what are you going to flip in in place of that 85 points so first of all there's a few floating points so i'm going to approximate it as approximately 100 points if i take the list down to its core there's about 1900 of stuff that's very difficult to modify 
in a pinch, I can make it closer to 190 points. Maybe in a pinch, 200. So let's call it flex points from 1 to 200. That's where I'm really trying to fill in, okay, what is it that I can alter about this list that won't make me too weak against some of the corner cases in the meta, like what's called a gatekeeper rise, where you don't expect to see them at a top table, per se. We do expect them to fight them along the way. So if I alter my list so that a five Imperial Knight army just trolls me, it's a bad list. Um, so I want to modify the toolbox to better deal with space marines, because I anticipate that some they're going to tip over to be more than percent of the meta. Um, I just don't want to overcorrect into, okay, now I can deal with Space Marines, but Eldar are going to troll me. Um, so without getting into too matchup-specific stuff, because we'll save that for a later episode, I see Marines being a lot more common. I feel like if you want to be competitive, you need to have a plan to deal with the various Marine archetypes that are going to be out there. And the thing, the problem is that a lot of those Marine archetypes push in different directions. So, for example, a White Scars slash Raven Guard army is going to be, I'm just going to charge you with half of my army turn one, and the other half turn two. Good luck. And an Iron Hands army is going to be like, I have the most efficient possible army in 40k. There is nothing that comes close to this. Good luck. So, having strategies to deal with those super min axis is definitely going to be a challenge, because a list that looks good against one might not look as good against the other. That's absolutely true, Brandon. One of them, like the past two weeks, three weeks, the most common question I've gotten is, how should I change my list to deal with Marines? And I hate that question more than anything, because I don't have an answer. The answer is, what type of Marines? So that's, the, that's a follow-up question I have to ask you. What you're really asking me, not, not in, you know, in, in layman's terms, is basically... How do I change my army to, to beat five Imperial Knights and 250 Orcs at the same time, and everything in between? ...are known for being super good at tailoring. Like the Necron army knows who their opponent's going to be. Oh, it's a totally different ballgame. Uh, they can take exactly the units they need to deal with that super efficiently. Whereas a guard army, everything tends to be kind of out of the box, all around you, not super specialized. Like, even look at a battle cannon. D3 damage. AP2, strength 8. It's the most average anti-tank weapon you can think of. Um, so that tends to be the guard approach is, okay, a battle cannon is pretty good against knights, and you know, it's got the rate of fire to at least put a dent in some boys. <clears throat> so it's a little easier for a guard army to be more generalist. But yes, I don't have the answer to that yet. I have some theories. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I have some lists that look mm -hmm. good, but I need to try them out, and the SoCal Open's coming up, so I can't wait. <laughs> we'll see. Um, awesome. So I guess this has been uh, a great episode. So thank you, Brandon. Um, we learned a lot. It's yeah, been amazing. But you never told us. You never told us what you were considering for that two hundred. Oh, yeah, we just talked about. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Difficult. Well, let's save that for the next episode as a nice cliffhanger because then it can get army specific. Oh, okay. So depending on where the meta goes, that's what you're saying is, is where, where, what you're going to end um, up with. I have a pretty good idea of where the meta is going in my head. The only question is, what now? Because um, I am interested in continuing to play guard for the foreseeable future. Um, but I'm also super amazed by the models coming out for Sisters of Battle. And if they have rules to support those models, there might be some... Uh, some mixing in this army after some time so it's not just pure guard oh i'm excited to hear about that yeah i'm excited to hear about that for sure okay well thanks everyone for tuning into this episode where we talked about uh brandon grant's strategy if you want to hear more about the tactics and the individual matchups jump on over to patreon and come join us for episode two awesome thanks for listening guys like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at AOW40K.com where we go deep into details of optimal play. 
This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect on Facebook. Just look for AOW40K. 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 Till next time.